Hello, and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 41, Tech Year in Review for 2020. As difficult and perhaps as unpleasant as it is to try and review 2020, we're going to do that from a technology point of view. We're going to mention larger events, I think, but we're also going to talk about some interesting things that happened that probably we couldn't have predicted when the year began. And to help me do that, I have two terrific guests. Uh, First up, Jonathan Mosen, who is the chief executive of WorkBridge and host of the Mosen at Large podcast. Hi, Jonathan. It's great to be here, Shelley. Hi. It's great to have you. And also Jason Snell, who is a previous guest here on Parallel, but known to listeners of Relay FM as the co-host of Upgrade. He's also the proprietor of Six Colors. And uh, I, I mentioned in the document that uh, this little format I came up with reminds me very much of a, a late lamented podcast he used to run called Download also uh, on Relay. Hi, Jason. Hi, Shelley. I, I remember Download. It, it We had to book guests every week and I got really tired of it. <laughs> but it was a fun show while it lasted. Booking guest is my favorite thing. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what I asked Jason and Jonathan to do, and I don't usually ask guests to do homework, but I did in this case, and they were kind enough to uh, humor me. I-, I asked them, and I have done this so myself, to come up with uh, some tech stories that we'd like to talk about from the year past, whether they be the biggest or just the most interesting to us. And we'll go in a round-robin fashion, and we'll just uh, work our way through some tech stories, some of which have to do with accessibility and some of which do not. And we'll start with Jonathan. What do you have for us? Well, I'm looking at a lot of these things from an accessibility lens. And for me, 2020 has been the year of working from home and Zoom. And as somebody who runs an employment agency here in New Zealand, where we seek to find work for disabled people, we've been asking employers for a long time for more work from home accommodations and being more flexible about the way things are done. We've been saying, look, it's all about the ends and not the means. And suddenly everybody's caught up with us. And this work from home thing has had to take off. A lot of people have become more familiar with using Zoom and Teams and other tools of that kind. And for me also, I'm totally blind, but I also have a hearing impairment. And going to unfamiliar destinations can be quite stressful, especially if they're noisy. So I can't see, and I've got all this noise bombarding me from everywhere. So the idea that now a lot more of the government departments that I deal with, the potential employers that I deal with, are quite happy, a lot more comfortable for me to say, look, can we just jump on Zoom and have the meeting that way? It's wonderful. And so for me, there have been some real positives of the pandemic and the legacy that it will leave when this is all over. Do you think you're teaching employers? That's I mean, it's one thing to say, hi, welcome to the neighborhood. But are you also able to say, here are some things you may not know about what it's like to work from home and to use these tools as your main way of communicating with people? Well, yes. see, I've been telecommuting a long time ago. I worked for a number of tech companies in the U.S. So I've been doing this probably for 20 years or more. And suddenly, disabled people who've been working in this way are the authorities. And we can give people hints and tips on how to do successful teleconferencing, different things like that. So yes, I think we've become the educators. And actually, Shelley, there are really many examples in history where disabled people have led the way in terms of technology, where technology that we've adopted very quickly of necessity has been the kind of thing that people have adopted and said, wow, actually, these are really convenient. You know, talking books were originally invented for blind people. The 
original scanner was this washing machine-sized reading machine in the 1970s that was invented for blind people, and on and on it goes. So a lot of this disability technology has migrated, and we've made this huge contribution. Now, Jason, your work, you have been working at home for a long time yourself. Has, has much changed for you like in your, in your work at home life this year? I definitely feel some guilt, some COVID guilt in 2020 because I have uh, continued to work in my little garage office and my life hasn't changed too much. But before I was uh, working from home, I was a manager in a media company and we had a very large percentage of my team that was remote. And so I've, I've gotten to see sort of both sides of it. And I've always been a huge proponent of using this technology in order to let people uh, live, you know, where they where they want to live, and hire people who you might not be able to hire if they have to come into an office in the a downtown big city center, but are the best person for the job. And so this year has taught me the other side of the lesson that I was I was trying I learned as a manager, which was trying to get. Uh, people who are not used to this kind of technology to embrace it, and they just were so resistant. And what the pandemic has done is forced people to use it out of necessity who would otherwise have not gone down that path. And not all of them will, in the end, come around. They'll want to go some degree back to normal, but I think there will be a lot of a lot more actually who having spent time using Zoom or Teams or Slack or anything like that will uh, will enter you know 2021 and 2022 with a very different approach to work because of it. So I I'm I'm optimistic on that front. I I feel like those of us who've been using these tools to work remotely for years already knew this was possible, but there were a lot of people who just didn't believe it. There's a lot of there's this uh, fantasy uh, that keeps coming up, which is this, you know, the greatest idea in your company's history will be uh, created when somebody at the coffee machine bumps into somebody who is getting something out of the refrigerator. And, you know, that can happen, but it mostly doesn't happen. And you can have those kind of serendipitous moments in a Slack channel, too. As somebody whose desk before the pandemic was across from the break room, I will tell you that mostly what you get is gossip. That's that's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I know way more about more about my office than my l- usual level of interest in gossip would have let me uh, believe I should. So yeah, there's a lot of fantasy stories about the importance of everybody being together and working together. And there are, to be sure, some jobs where that is necessary. But a lot of especially information knowledge worker type people, it's not really necessary. And I think that this is uh, this pandemic has disabused a lot of people of that fantasy. And that's going to be a good thing. Well, Jason, what is your first topic for us? Oh, well, my first topic, not not speaking of the pandemic, did you know there was a pandemic in 2020? <laughs> I heard uh, that. Um, I, I Since this is about technology, I thought an interesting technology angle for this would be the rise of, um, first off, our ability to do rapid gene sequencing and also the use of messenger RNA to enable a uh, COVID-19 vaccine or indeed many of them to be created. And it's just striking as vaccines are starting to roll out now that we've never seen a rollout of a vaccine like this in less than, I, I forget, like two, three years. I think the record is like three years 
something like that. A long time, a lot less time than is happening now. And it's because of these new technologies, actually a little bit like what I just said about using uh, Zoom and things like that. Uh, this technology was talked about for a long time, but nobody had actually done it. And this was the time when a lot of those objections to this sort of technology were kind of dropped because it looked like the fastest path <clears throat> to doing this. And there's a story about how the genetic sequence of COVID-19 was resolved. They, they sequenced the DNA of the virus in January. Like it, it happened very quickly. And then most of this year has been getting it to be an uh, you know, a testable and then testing the actual vaccine. And who knows what 2021 will bring, but it's certainly looking like 2021 is going to see uh, a widespread inoculation against this virus. And it is remarkable because without these technologies, without that rapid gene sequencing, without the use of, of messenger RNA to create the, uh, to stimulate the response in people's immune systems, uh, it might have been until, who knows, 2022, 2023, 2024 before a traditional vaccine could have been available for COVID-19, which is kind of hard to believe. So I think that that's the bright side of this terrible story this year is how this technology was sort of right on the precipice. And this is the thing that sort of pushed it over the edge. Yeah, it's a triumph of science, isn't it? And I think the biomedical community really should be congratulated for the way that they knuckled down and did this in record time. But of course, you've got the other virus to contend with, and that is the good old FUD, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> the fear, uncertainty and doubt. And that has been sowed so effectively by people who have been dissing science for years, one of whom, reluctantly, whether they like it or not, is about to exit the White House. So I think one of the real problems that will remain is gaining confidence in the vaccine at a public level. I mean, you had the anti-vaxxers anyway. There's just been such a blurring of what is true. But I guess on the optimistic side, it does make me wonder what we could do as a species if we paid the same kind of attention to climate change. We recently in New Zealand declared a national climate emergency and adopted a public policy stance in keeping with an emergency. And I do wonder what a more climate-friendly White House might be able to achieve. Uh, but maybe experts will be popular again. You know, that this <laughs> triumph of science may mean that actually it might count to know something once in a while. So I'll be interested to see how it goes. I mean, we are seeing some predictable side effects as the first vaccines are being administered in the United Kingdom. And there will always be those kings. You know, you see people who are experiencing allergic reactions and it's the same as software. You can beta test all you want, but it's not until you actually roll out that you'll start to see some of these things and you have to be watchful for them. And that will be grist to the mill for some of the anti-vaxxers and they'll try and make the most of that. So there's a lot of message management still to be done if we're going to get past this and make the most of what the scientists have delivered to us. And we're in such a screwy society now where people's alternative facts or whatever what you want them to be. I think that's the thing that scares me the most is how we get through all of that. Jonathan, I can think of all sorts of questions I would ask you about what what the environment is like in New Zealand relative to the United States, which is probably a little beyond the scope of where we have time to, to go today. But I, I'm sort of fascinated by the degree to which it is a public information campaign. You know, we, you've, been, you've been wanting to get out of the house. This virus has been 
driving you crazy, whether you are actually affected by it directly or whether you just feel constrained by being confined, but yet a, an opportunity for a solution is presented and there's still those who are going to be skeptical, whatever that is. And that's an interesting public health and public information problem to have to contend with. Yes, it is. And New Zealand isn't a utopia. I mean, we've got our anti-vaxxers here. We've also got our people who believe in the whole, you know, the 5G is causing the coronavirus nonsense. But at the same time, we do live in a country here where we have a lot of confidence in scientists and leaders. And so when our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, locked us down very tight in March, there really wasn't that much opposition. And we locked down in a way that I don't believe most states in the US have ever locked down, even when people were really complying. The only things that were open were supermarkets and service stations. There was no dining. You couldn't even get Uber Eats here for five weeks because they were determined to nip the virus in the bud. But the ramifications of that really strict lockdown, going hard and going early, is that with the exception of the borders still being closed, we are completely back to normal. There are zero cases of COVID-19 in the entire country. Uh, the only cases are those coming in in managed isolation. We have large sports gatherings. New Zealand is doing the business at cricket quite successfully because we're heading into summer and people are gathering in their thousands. I attended my daughter's university graduation. We were packed in close. So we're back to normal. We have uh, invested in locking down very, very hard and strictly, and now we're reaping the dividends of that investment. Well, my topic is pandemic-related as well, but but not nearly so serious, and it's one that I was aware of at the very beginning of the pandemic in the United States and that, that still continues to be playing out in its own, own way, and that is the degree to which people, in an attempt to entertain themselves, have found online gaming platforms to share. And that's not new. It wasn't invented because of coronavirus by any means. But fortuitously, the Animal Crossing update New Horizons came out, I believe it was on March 20th, so literally a week after the U.S. locked down. And then more recently, the game Among Us, which has actually been around for a couple of years, has become a big thing among people who are not necessarily hardcore gamers by any means and may not even be as as I don't know whether Among Us players are as rabid as, say, Animal Crossing players are, because I know a lot of people who are very, very invested in the world, world of Animal Crossing. And I, I, I haven't really done a lot of that myself, but I'm just intrigued by how, how quickly and how thoroughly uh, people adopted these games as basically ways to, to keep their sanity and also to maintain social relationships. I think that's probably the more important part. Yeah, it really is a, an alternate view of what we were just saying about Zoom and Teams and Slack and things like that, which is there is connection that's desired. And there there have been these kinds of games for a very long time, but we were all in our homes and didn't and were seeking human connection. And it wasn't all just doing work in Zoom meetings. It was also playing games and doing, you know, I, I, I have an article uh, that I'll, I'll talk about later about the other kinds of games that also have come to prominence in, in the pandemic. But I think that it's just human nature, that we're all trying to find ways to seek connection. And technology has allowed a lot of that. And Animal Crossing, you could not, literally could not have released a game like that at a better time than that moment. Yeah, it made me feel really sad when 
I read the article that you sent, Shelley, in advance of us talking because it made me realise what a really boring and sad person I am. I think that the COVID-19 pandemic has been such a different experience for different people. So when I look back on our lockdown, it was really hard work for me. I lead a team who was spread out across 22 offices around New Zealand. We had to implement our pandemic continuity plan. I felt some degree of responsibility for their well-being. And I also run a voluntary internet radio station staffed in the main by blind people. And we had a role to play in just kind of bringing our community together. So I look back on when we were locked down and all I think of is exhaustion. It was really hard work. And, um, you know, I know that for a lot of people, jobs stopped and people did have a lot of leisure time. But for me, man, it was it was tough. And I do wonder, looking at this from an accessibility lens, whether it was that much different for some disabled people who, for reasons of socioeconomic capability or accessibility, often spend a lot of time at home anyway. And this might be just another example where a lot of disabled people were saying, well, you know, welcome to our world, essentially. Well, another way to look at that, Jonathan, is that these games, I happen to pick out a couple of games that are not particularly accessible because those are the ones that the mainstream folks have have been playing. Right. And I, I guess I, I mean, maybe I have my answer from what you just said, but I wonder, and as somebody who, whenever I hear about something new and I'm invited to play something, my first question is, is it going to be accessible to me? And oftentimes, unfortunately, the answer is no. But I wonder, and, and perhaps with your, your radio team, where where what you're doing is about, you know, entertainment and the like, whether you feel like the community aspect of what you do was was changed or benefited by the pandemic, whether you feel like you were in more or different kinds of contact with uh, friends or with acquaintances, or as I say, with the, with the, with the Mushroom FM community. Yes, some of us adapted. So the show that I do during the week, just because of the pressure of work, is usually voice tracks. And for those not familiar with that, it's a system where essentially you just record the voice breaks between the tracks. It doesn't take you long to do, really. And I need that for, for the week. But I changed and did two shows every day, 12 hours apart, live. And we had a lot of interaction on Twitter, on, on social media, from people who were very out of sorts and distressed and they just wanted a familiar voice to provide some company to them. So in that sense, it was very moving to think that just by volunteering to do this, we were making that sort of difference. But also I think, you know, it's, it's true to say that the blind community certainly have had a number of places that have been going for some time now where they do congregate and play online games. So, you know, I, I suppose in some ways we're a little bit apart from the rest and this is where I think iOS in particular has made such a game-changing contribution to our world because there are developers who are conscious of accessibility and there are some mainstream games now, not too many of the multiplayer, I don't think, you know, in real time, but there are some games where blind people and sighted people can play together and I think that's a really important part of social interaction. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by The IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. I really enjoy finding new podcasts, as I'm guessing a lot of you do, since you are listening to this very show. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, The IntraZone is a biweekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech can work for you. 
You'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field so you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. Each show covers a bunch of segments like news and announcements, a focus topic of the week, guest perspectives, FAQs of the week, and upcoming events. And just so you have an idea of what to expect, I want to tell you about some topics you might be interested in that were on recent episodes. They've discussed working from home, which I know is relevant to some of you. Also, figuring out an intelligent intranet in your organization. And they did an episode talking about API and teamwork, too. I listened to an episode about things in SharePoint that drive customers crazy, which was kind of a refreshing way to look at it. They had a couple of uh, customers and Microsoft MVPs uh, talking about problems they had with SharePoints that they managed to get out of and how they did that. So go and listen to it now. Just search for the Intra Zone wherever you get your podcast. That's Intra, I-N-T-R-A, Zone, or just click on the link in the show notes and go check it out. Our thanks to the IntraZone and Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Well, Jonathan, I think that's almost a segue because I, unlike the audience, know what's coming next. So why don't you just hit us with your next topic? <laughs> yes, Apple continues to innovate in the accessibility space in a phenomenal way. And one of the things I thought that I would highlight is the thing that actually tipped me over the edge. I thought I was going to sit out the iPhone 12. I told my podcast listeners I was going to do this because there was 5G. I thought there might be some battery drain as people got used to that. And But the thing that put me over the edge was I wanted to be a part of being on the cutting edge of this new LiDAR technology that is in the iPhone 12 Pro range, so the 12 and the 12 Pro Max. And instantly, Apple saw an accessibility use case for this and I think it has particular relevance in 2020 where we're co conscious of social distancing. Some blind people have gone out there and been berated for getting too close to other people. And of course, if you can't see, and particularly if you have guide dogs, you know, you might not have any idea how far in front of you someone is. So the new feature in the iPhone 12 Pro range is a people detection feature, and it's using LiDAR to essentially make sounds that indicates, firstly, that somebody is in front of you at all, and second, by using different kinds of tones, letting you know how close to that person you are. At the moment, with the social distancing exception, I would describe it more as a proof of concept thing, but you wait. I mean, when those Apple glasses come out, as we understand they are going to come out, imagine how amazing that will be if you combine people detection with the ability to identify individuals who may be in your contacts and you have a photo of them, it's going to be a bit of a game changer. So Apple really has hit it out of the park with this one, I think. Yeah, they have, um, with the LiDAR and with their increasing ability to do rapid artificial intelligence analysis of, um, of your surroundings, you put those together and and you mentioned you know augmented reality glasses at some point which everybody sort of seems to expect but you it, it's not unreasonable to think in the very near future whether it's with an iPhone or whether it's with glasses or something like that you're going to be able to be alerted about whatever you want to be alerted alerted about in a field around you not just people uh, unidentified people identified people uh, objects uh, locations, uh, did the light turn green? Like, this is not actually, all of that stuff is basically able to be done already. 
And then you throw in a LiDAR sensor where you can get very precise distance and location. And what Apple should be able to do in providing an accessibility layer on top of the world is uh, really exciting because they, the technology is all coming together. You, it really all exists now. It's just a matter of how it gets integrated. And as you said, it's a bit of a proof of concept right now, but you can see that um, all the pieces are in place for this. Well, another part of what Apple did, and it wasn't it doesn't require LiDAR even, is the voiceover recognition features, which give you image detection and text descriptions. So basically, you can point your camera or the magnifier app at your environment with voiceover on Mm. and with this image recognition feature on, and it will attempt to identify your surroundings. And it makes comical mistakes, but it does enough right. And I, I, the last a couple of episodes ago, I did a pretty thoroughgoing demo of this on Parallel, uh, but it actually gets an amazing amount of stuff right. And I think it's also a matter of knowing how you want to deploy it as a user. It's fast. It works on all of the iPhone 12s. It actually goes back a couple of generations, all the way back to the 10R, I believe. And it's even on sort of unannounced on, on some of the iPads. So it's not requiring the A14 to make that happen. It just requires the machine learning chip to begin with. And that's only going to grow better and smarter. It, it sort of was snuck into iOS 13. It didn't have any settings. It was just sort of there and people sort of discovered it. But in iOS 14, they went ahead and said, well, here's image recognition and here's uh, text descriptions, which is great for all sorts of reasons. And then also the uh, screen recognition feature that makes it possible to take an inaccessible app and at least guess at some of the interface items. Right. So all, all that together is just amazing. And it's it's uh, and just to quickly go back to what Jonathan was saying about the glasses, whether it's glasses or whether it's even in the phone, uh, this is – people detection is definitely the basis of something – greater and i think it's reason for people in the accessibility community to feel good about the potential for glasses because i think for some people the idea that there would be augmented reality glasses from apple the first question of course is always will they be accessible and the second question is will it be pro forma accessibility or will it be accessibility that's useful and what these features we're talking about are are not adaptations of mainstream features they're specific accessibility features that do things that are interesting in the mainstream, but are absolutely essential for people who are using it for accessibility reasons. Yeah, sometimes Apple drops the ball in peculiar ways, but when it comes to the big product management decisions about new products and services, in terms of accessibility, they typically delight. I mean, they they absolutely delight. So I'm confident that when the glass does come out, it's going to be amazing. Your talk, Shelley, about how do blind people deploy some of this new camera technology? It's a point very well made because I found myself with some time to kill in the office of a senior government official a couple of weeks ago. And I thought of this feature and I got my camera out and I was just sort of virtually looking around and it was telling me about the things that were in the office, you know, pictures on the wall and different things like that. And of course, then the official came back into the office and he said, well, you, are you trying to take pictures of documents? On <laughs> but for me, it was just my looking around. So it's amazing, you know, just 10 years ago, or maybe a little more now, 
cameras were kind of considered these mysterious things that blind people could never understand. And the impact that cameras have on us now, you know, from object recognition to OCR, uh, all barcode reading, all kinds of things, it is amazing what has changed. So, Jason, that's pretty much all Apple did this year, right? No, no other yeah, big thing? That, <laughs> just uh, knocked off of the year. And, well, I, I think it is – it's funny um, – one of the great advantages, the secret sauce that Apple has is, is I think, born out of Steve Jobs returning to Apple and really his, his experience out at Next as well. Um, Steve Jobs committed to building this culture inside Apple about Apple not wanting to be, um, how shall I put this? They, they want to control all the things that are, are important to controlling their destiny. They don't want to end up having to rely on someone else for a key portion of whatever they're building they think is important to their product. And that started out very early on in things like building their own web browser instead of using Microsoft's. But as time went on, Apple has done this with lots of other things. And in 2020, I think you saw it with its processors, which have been powering those iPhones and iPads for a while now, and Apple TVs and Apple Watches. And in 2020, they came to the Mac. And when we talk about accessibility and, and, and machine learning and things like that, one of the things that's really interesting about Apple's processors is that they all have integrated over the last few years, and the, the new Macs that have them have this as well, the Neural Engine, which is all about having specialized hardware on the chip that drives the system that is entirely geared toward machine learning. And this is one of those cases where Apple's interest in augmented reality and interested in potentially self-driving cars and their interest in finding ways to use cameras in mobile devices for accessibility all, they all are interconnected and finding ways to make your photo library searchable. They're all kind of interrelated because Apple is controlling all of the different parts and they have a long-term strategy and they execute it year after year after year. And so while another company might be interested in doing you know, machine learning so that you can hold up a, a phone camera and get a, a readout of what's around you, if they if their chip supplier doesn't have apart or doesn't have that as a priority, there's nothing they can do about it. And Apple doesn't work like that. So this year we saw Apple make Macs with its own processors. Now all of Apple's products essentially are driven by processors that were designed by Apple's own chip team. And, you know, the story is that they're very fast and they are much better than what Intel versions they replaced. And there are lots of rumors that the next wave of Macs will be even faster. And these Macs are already faster than almost all other Macs in existence. Uh, that's really great. But also, you start to see all of these technologies from iOS that are very slowly kind of creeping onto the Mac, I think are going to rapidly move to the Mac in the next few years because now they're a, essentially a common hardware platform where everybody's going to have the neural engine, everybody's got image signal processing, everybody's got all of these different bits of technology because they're all using essentially a version of the same chip that Apple designed itself and has been planning on designing. That's the beauty of it for like, five years, right? They're working way ahead in terms of what their priorities are. And and uh, I think in 2020, you really saw the, uh, the, the payoff they get, <laughs> the payout they get for uh, having that plan and executing it and being able to do what Steve Jobs told them to do from the beginning in their culture, which is control all elements that you possibly can. Makes your mouth water, doesn't it? <laughs> I, mean, I, I used a Mac for four years and what I found during that time was that there are quite a few tasks 
from an efficiency and an accessibility perspective that I still felt I was better doing in Windows. There were a lot of things that I did on the Mac, but I enjoyed having the virtual machine where I could have the best of both worlds. And obviously the fact that these chips are not Intel makes that much more difficult. I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's likely that eventually ARM's version of Windows will run on this and yes, for sure. then it will be up to the screen reader manufacturers to do their thing. But for all of that, the idea of the instant on, the battery life, the microphone array in that higher end, the, the MacBook Pro with the M1, sounds amazing. And I think about the sound from a blind person's point of view. The ability to run iOS apps, that convergence that's coming along, of course, begs the question, will they relent and do a Mac touchscreen at some point? But I mean, it's where it's at, isn't it? it it's just sucked the oxygen out of discussion about Windows laptops. These are the devices to beat. And it's only the first one. You know, what they've done so far is quite incremental. And I think they probably did that in terms of form factor so as not to frighten the horses. They realised that there'd be a lot of questions. It is, it's a big change. So you have something that looks very similar to what they had before, but with a lot more grunt under the hood. I imagine they will get a lot more innovative in terms of form factors and features the one thing that I think is strange about the Mac range, given that they do cater to professionals, is that they've never done one with a cellular option. And yet, you know, it does exist in iPad. And I've owned now a series of Windows laptops that have 4G. And I find it very useful not to have to hotspot my phone and drain the battery. So I hope that that's something that they will add in short order to the next Macs. Actually, a footnote to that would be that one of the other areas that Apple hated to um, deal with other companies about and wanted to take control of themselves was the cellular modem that's used mm. in their phones. And they're using, uh, for their 5G phones, they're using Qualcomm modems, but they previously had been using some modems from Intel. And Intel decided to get out of that business, and Apple bought the business from them. So Apple is now in the works building their own 5G modems, presumably. So I think a lot of us are hoping, um, as you are, that that's a sign that we might actually get cellular Macs in the future too, because again, Apple will be building it themselves and and then they'll want to put it everywhere. I had never thought about a cellular Mac. I mean, it, it makes sense for somebody who doesn't want to make the jump to an iPad. And there are a lot of reasons why you would choose one platform or the other. I, the the thing about the M1 Max, one of the first things I said, we were doing a day of show, and one of the first things I said, especially since they continue to have Intel Macs even in the same lines, there are still Intel MacBook Pros, is how you say, here's a first-generation computer, it's really fast, buy it or buy this older, more expensive device, but that's more tried and true. Like, And we're not literally in Apple stores as much as we used to be, but that's sort of always the way I envision it. You have somebody coming into the store and saying, I need a new laptop. Tell me which one I ought to get. And I am sort of intrigued by what the consumer level conversation is about which device to get. And the M1 benefits, especially the MacBook Airs, from being the less expensive alternative. And I think there's a potential for a double take on a customer's part where they say, wait, this is the newer, faster one. It's cheaper. Sure, it has, you know, somewhat less features, but not that many. There, there's very, the, the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air are fairly, fairly close, at least over, out on top of the hood, not necessarily under the hood. And so 
I just am intrigued by that from a I'd be curious to see what we hear about 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 sales. There's there are indications that they're actually doing quite well. Yeah, it is. Um, it's an interesting time because they can't turn over their whole product line at once. And so you do have these Intel Macs for sale. And there's a real question of, well, is anybody buying them? But I would imagine that their highest volume product is the MacBook Air. I think they even said that that's their best selling Mac. And so they kind of went there. And that's an audience that's going to care a lot less about obscure compatibility issues, which of which there remain some, and otherwise they're just going to get a new Mac and it's going to be fine. But Apple has to be very careful in 2021 to uh, fulfill the rest of the market that's up, uh, you know, higher end than these first three uh, M1 Macs. My next topic has to do with the U.S. attempt to rein big tech in, specifically Google and Facebook. There have been noises made about Apple's to do with the App Store, and we we can talk about that, but I think most of the sort of ire from from different sides of the aisle, interestingly, and for different reasons, is Google and Facebook. And state attorneys general from all over the United States have joined lawsuits against both companies, generally speaking, on antitrust grounds. The, the new Facebook one with the Federal Trade Commission involved is on antitrust grounds to do with the uh, fact that they own Instagram and WhatsApp as well as Facebook. Facebook's basic argument is, you approve those deals, leave us alone. And we're at the, obviously at the very beginning of whatever litigation happens. It will take years for this stuff to go through the courts. And so what was a sort of a talking point for, and still is, for political types, every once in a while the leaders of big tech are hauled in front of Congress to account for themselves. But what was a talking point has now started to coalesce into these various lawsuits that are specifically about antitrust. But if you ask the political actors, they have to do with what people believe is favoring of different kinds of speech or allowing speech that shouldn't be allowed to disinformation to be out there. So, but I'm I'm interested, I guess, in the uh, degree to which the beginning of legal action is going to change the way the conversation happens in 2021. You have a different administration, but you have a lot of the same people in those congressional seats, and you have a lot of the same people in those state houses. So, I I don't. It won't be resolved by any means. I guess what I'm interested in is whether Facebook and Google even feel the need to pay lip service to what's being uh, charged against them to 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 make it seem as if they're not they're more benevolent than they actually are. And uh, I think it remains to be seen. But I think this is the year where we saw the first concrete actions moving us toward some sort of uh, either regulation or sanction of big tech. I think there are a number of issues here. One is obviously whether there's a market that facilitates innovation. And it, it seems like there is not. You know, Facebook has so much uh, dosh behind it that they can scoop up anything that remotely looks like a threat. And the approval of the uh, WhatsApp and Instagram purchases suggests that somebody was asleep at the switch. So there's the innovation argument. There's also, for me, the freedom of speech argument, which I feel incredibly conflicted about because I am definitely on the left of the spectrum, even by New Zealand standards, which means I'm probably just almost out of vision in the US uh, <laughs> scheme of things. And um, I, 
understand why uh, outlets like Twitter and Facebook are intervening when people are claiming without any evidence whatsoever that a presidential election was stolen. I get that, and I understand why the, the tweets are coming up with a little rider there. But at the same time, it, it still troubles me that unelected people somewhere are becoming the arbiter of what is true. And it's fine when you get something that's as clear-cut as this, but it does make me wonder what happens when situations are a little bit murkier than they are now. So I do actually, surprisingly, have some sympathy with this argument. How do you, how do you manage that? The third point for me about all of this is that while I detest Facebook, and I've come off and on Facebook, I got off Facebook and I was very proud of myself after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and then I was working for a US-based startup, actually, and they said, would you please, please come back on Facebook and help manage our social media? So I reluctantly got back on there, and I'm still hanging out. Um, so I, I, I don't approve of the way Facebook does things and pollutes the public discourse, but... The fewer people that you have to deal with, the easier it is to advocate for accessibility. So if everything is rolled up into a small number of players, you know, the limited advocacy muscle that you have doesn't have to be exhausted so much. So it does concern me that if there were a massive breakup, is there sufficient legislative safeguard in place to preserve the gains that we've had in terms of Google to some degree, Facebook and Twitter embracing accessibility, would we lose something? Yeah, I am worried about the fact that I don't think our democratic institutions are particularly capable of dealing with the scale and the power of these uh, information channels, essentially, that the tech giants have. And what you see instead is oftentimes politicians complaining that their uh, their their statements or the statements of the more extreme portions of their party get moderated and that they want it to be free and unmoderated, which is anyone will tell you you can't run an online community and have it be completely free and open. Um, so instead of talking about the larger issue, which is, you know, exactly what you said, uh, Jonathan, which is that... Um, who are these people and why did they make the rules and whether they're making what we think of as good rules or bad rules, they are not elected. They are not, they are, they are working for a profit driven company. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has complete control of Facebook and can do whatever he wants and will never be replaced as CEO. And he has the power to, as we've seen repeatedly proven, uh, adjust the algorithm on Facebook and completely bend how people see the world because so many people see the world reflected in whatever is in their Facebook timeline. And if Facebook floats up high engagement stories that are about conspiracy theories, we've seen this with YouTube as well, then uh, people believe conspiracy theories because th that's what's shown to them. I, I, you know, I have some hope that the younger generation, my kids generation is well aware of, you know, has been inoculated basically against some of this nonsense uh, in a way that a more credulous older population just sort of tends to believe what they see because we were raised in an era where there were gatekeepers. And if you saw it, it, it had more likelihood to be true. But, um, but in general, I think what we've seen in the history of regulating technology 
is that um, the political process can be decades behind the reality. Um, and I'm not sure how or if that can be changed. Um, as an American, I start to think that the only way that this is going to really change is that you have to have a much more aggressive regime in place to uh, regulate these companies. And at that point, really, we're talking about the EU because the EU is the only large economy that in the, at least in, in the West, that has uh, a, a desire to attempt to regulate these companies because the US has, has not ever really stepped up. The fact that they're talking about breaking up Facebook, we're about to change presidential administrations remains to be seen if that even even continues but the eu a lot of the changes that have happened have either happened in the united states because california has made a regulation and everybody else goes along with it or because the eu has done so and then they have to change their behavior in order to do business in europe i think there's a big difference between the kind of regulation you get if you have an agency like the SEC or the FTC or whatever agency is specifically relevant to the problem that's going on with a company like Facebook uh, and congressional regulation, which starts with chest thumping and uh, sort of showing off for the constituents and ends up by making hodgepodgey negotiated laws. And the, the one side of the aisle is fighting Section 230 that holds – that prevents uh, – accountability for uh, entities like Facebook for stuff that's on their site. And that is a cause celebre on one side of the aisle because they feel like if they could hold those companies accountable, then they could change their behavior. And another side is focused on disinformation, as I think they should be. But it's not really a good way to address antitrust or to address the degree to which Facebook holds an incredible number of people captive, if you want to put it that way, which I do, because they own all the platforms and because they are working furiously to integrate those platforms so much that you have this, you know, controlled experience. And so I would hope that if whatever regulate then that then that's the EU model. So when that when GDPR was created and when the EU has created other regulations, it hasn't been done based on sort of the contrivances of elected politicians. It's been in, in this particular case, I think I'd rather see thoroughgoing agency based regulation with public oversight, obviously, than to see people regulate from the floor of Congress, because that that way lies madness, in my opinion. Yeah, as long as you can get those agencies that are not riddled with political appointments so that their perspective doesn't change uh, every time the president changes. Well, that's a problem in a lot of – I think that's going to be more of a problem for the U.S. going forward than it ever has been before in a lot of respects. When thinking about the biggest time waster at work, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50 percent of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes – is spent on emails that should never have been sent to them or that didn't need an answer. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out all the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in whatever email client you use. 
It also has some nifty features like the sane black hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and sane reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. So I've spent a lot of time with SaneBox lately. Actually, I haven't spent a lot of time with it because it's basically uh, managed my email and kept it out of my way. And I think that's the, the main experience I have is that the things that come to my inbox that I actually need to address are there for me. SaneBox doesn't hide them from me, but the things I don't need to deal with are the things that can be delayed are waiting for me in the Sane Later folder or if I use the training tools to tell SaneBox that I would like a sender to be vanquished to the black hole or to send to another one of the mailboxes they provide, then that happens and it's just not something I have to worry about. And that's a, a big time saver for me. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com parallel today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's SaneBox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash parallel. Our thanks to SaneBox for their support of this show and Relay FM. Jonathan, what do you have for us? I thought I'd throw this one into the mix and preface it by saying that your best friends are the ones who tell you when you've gone off the rails <laughs> sometimes and you thank them for it afterwards. I have purchased a lot of Apple products over the years and Apple has, as we've talked about, justifiably received a lot of kudos for what they've done with accessibility. They have changed the world. And you know there's a but coming. There has been a serious quality control issue pervading Apple's accessibility offerings, certainly where blind people are concerned, for some years. Uh, some years ago, it got to the point where the United States' uh, largest advocacy organisation for blind people, the National Federation of the Blind, passed a resolution at its National Convention of Concern so when these things happen, it makes you feel like you're sort of 14 or something because Apple just ghosts us and doesn't really <laughs> make any kind of comment at all. Uh, perhaps they think it's, it's beneath them to comment. Uh, but they do get a lot of publicity about how wonderful they are for providing these features for disabled people. And I don't resent that. What does concern me is that there is next to no coverage in the mainstream media of the persistent quality control issues that there have been over many years, some of which have been very, very serious to the point that when one version of iOS came out, some blind people couldn't even answer the phone reliably. Now, that affects people's safety, potentially. It affects people's livelihood. If you're in sales or whatever and you rely on the phone and you can't answer the call, if that had happened to sighted people, it would have been fixed in an overnight update. It was that serious. So this year what happened is that we got the first public beta of watchOS. A lot of blind people are signing up to these public betas because they want to be a constructive part of the solution and provide feedback to Apple in the hope that it would actually be taken notice of before the releases go gold. Now, with this watchOS beta, it preceded a... Uh, I'm sorry, I'll try that again. With that watchOS beta... It followed a developer beta, which came out about a week or two before it. And in that developer beta, they had a release note that said that voiceover in watchOS would not work. In other words, if you're blind, don't install this build because it's going to completely brick your phone to all intents and purposes. If you can't see the screen and voiceover doesn't work, then you have a useless watch. Of course, what happened was that a lot of people on those developer betas were automatically updated because Apple likes you to have automatic updates on. 
So there went my many year move streak <laughs> right there. Uh, but what astounded me was knowing that they had that bug, they released that same developer beta as their first public beta, which meant that every member of the public who wanted to, who owned an Apple Watch, could test unless they were blind. And if you were blind, you couldn't because voiceover was broken. And, that, you know, I know bugs happen. That's what betas are for, of course. So if it had been an inadvertent thing, I wouldn't be talking about this. But they knowingly released that public beta without voiceover working. To me, that's just completely unacceptable. They are an assistive technology company by virtue of getting into this space. I set up a petition got over 2,000 signatures on there, sent it off to Apple. Uh, they obviously didn't uh, even bother to respond to that petition or make any comment about it. And I am, you know, I hate to hold uh, you, Jason, or, or, or you for that matter, Shelley, who writes mainstream articles as well, um, to account for the entire media industry. But I find it really frustrating that despite the fact that I reached out to a number of media outlets and said, I really think you need to understand that is all not roses there. I, I think the product people at Apple are probably quite frustrated with the quality control people at Apple because they're letting the side down. No one wants to cover this. No one wants to actually get behind the story and appreciate that actually Apple have some serious quality control issues that they haven't addressed for a long time. It, it is concerning, and I think my one of my hobby horses is coverage of accessibility in the mainstream press and I'll, I'll take a sort of a different tech because I ride that fence. That's why this show is called Parallel. Uh, mm. And I, I, I ride that fence a little bit and I, I talk to both camps and sadly there are precious few overlaps. But my thought has always been that what the mainstream media wants to do in terms of accessibility is report successes. They want to give Apple or Google or Microsoft or whoever it is a win. And often the way accessibility functions are expressed, like people detection, like we were talking about before, which got a lot of mainstream play, is as something <clears throat> that is not only just really great for those blind people, isn't it wonderful that they have this, but also just a proof of concept, an example of the amazeballs technology that a company like Apple or Microsoft or Google, all of which have released tremendous accessibility tools, it gives good feels to people in the mainstream. And it also lets them off the hook for not understanding how these features work or don't work because it is constant and consistent that when even what are billed as comprehensive reviews of an iOS or a macOS uh, release come out, accessibility is not included at all because the people who are writing those reviews don't understand it. And they either don't have the means to understand it themselves, nor have they gone out and found somebody to report on it as a user. And for that reason, that what you just said about that watchOS beta, which I knew about because I live in the community, uh, is probably unknown to most people. And if you presented it to the mainstream media, they don't know what to do with it because they're so un, they're so detached from the way accessibility actually works and functions and the degree to which accessibility is just like any other category of function, whether it's uh, Siri or whether it's uh, um, HomeKit or machine learning, all those tools have their pluses and their minuses and their features and their bugs. And people who write about this stuff make an attempt to understand and report on those things. But because accessibility is 
something that is only for a relatively small group of users, they aren't report that's not reported on in the same way. Yeah, mainstream coverage of accessibility is superficial and it's sycophantic. And you know, one of the things that I have said to people about this is voiceover is the equivalent of our screen. Would they have released a watchOS public beta with the screen disabled? Because right. that's effectively what they did to blind people. We were completely shut out sure. of being able to test watchOS. And one journalist in a moment of frankness said to me, look, you know, we would go in and cover a story like, say, the arguments to do with Fortnite or uh, Spotify and others saying that Apple's being too heavy-handed in the App Store because they're big issues and it's worth expending some potential capital with Apple on. But we are worried about essentially being blacklisted by Apple if we shatter the illusion around accessibility. And so we're just not going to run it because it's not worth the risk of running it. See, I would take a different uh, tactic a little bit, and I would say that Apple's uh, development process and its beta release process is broken with regard to accessibility. And I say that because you mentioned, for example, this bug came out in a developer beta, and a week later they released it as the public beta, knowing that there was this enormous accessibility problem with it. Um, and that's generally how the the process works is they choose what build they use as a developer beta uh, based on a certain set of criteria, including what is acceptable to release outside of Cupertino. And then after that goes out, it goes to developers who are the most hardcore. And if it destroys their computers or their phones or their watches, so be it. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. But if it does, so be it. But if that clears that uh, hurdle, then they go on and they release it to the public. And that's why they do it that way. Generally, the public beta is literally the same build, as you found out in this case, as the developer beta. Well, they would never, ever, 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 ever release a developer beta that broke the screen or that couldn't run apps or that couldn't connect to the cell network, or even something like couldn't connect to the Wi-Fi network, they wouldn't release it. They would say, mm-mm, go back, fix that problem, do another build. We're not going to release a developer beta until we fix that problem. And they did that with this. And then even then, the accessibility issue didn't raise to the point where they said, we can't release this as the public beta, so we need to do a new build. And so I think what I would say is that although there are people at Apple who are clearly committed to accessibility and that there are cycles in the development process for all of their software to uh, build accessibility features in, what is the disconnect is at the point where they're building software for release, especially this beta cycle, but you could argue there are certain cases where things get broken in public final releases too. There, there you see a complete lack of concern about this issue. And that, to me, I look at it and I immediately say, that's your problem, is Apple doesn't think broken accessibility is a showstopper for betas. And they should. Yeah. Of course they should. That, that developer beta shouldn't even have it. But certainly if it has it, they should turn around and say, we're not releasing the public beta. And I don't know... In, I can't see inside that black box of Apple because that is very secret stuff in there. But it is a real disconnect between their prioritization of features and 
their prioritization of what is a show-stopping bug for a beta. And, you know, if you're turning it on the, the, the developers, I could see the argument, but not to the general public. I, I think it's there are yeah. two things. They're two, the two separate things. And what you're saying, Jason, is absolutely right. And I think what Jonathan and I are saying about sort of the media role in it is that because of access, accessibility has the same problem in both environments, that it is... Uh, of lesser importance when you compare sure. it to other things that would be show-stopping features. So, in, and also in app, in, on on the Apple side, I would submit, and I know there have been very bad uh, iOS voiceover bugs and Braille bugs that have actually shipped, but I would submit that just as accessibility is a lesser feature than, say, Wi-Fi or the cellular network. Watch OS is probably perceived as less critical, mission critical than iOS is. Right. And, and I would also say that betas are not finals. And so they are less um, of a priority in terms of coverage as well. So you end up with a, sure. a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. I would imagine yeah. that if voiceover was broken on the shipping version of macOS Big Sur, that it would be a story. But broken in a public beta is sort of like, are we even writing about the public beta? There are There are not that many... You could call them mainstream, but there really aren't that many things even remotely mainstream that cover uh, public beta release beyond the first one. And so that's that's part of the challenge is you end up with Apple not prioritizing it and the media sort of thinking that it's a subset of a subset of a subset of a story. And then it just kind of nobody talks about it. See, I would push back on that a little bit because I read religiously 9 to 5 Mac and um, what else? Uh, Apple Insider. Yeah, yeah, if you call that, I'm if that's more, mainstream, then and, yes, you're right. They do They do yeah. breathlessly cover every single one of these. That, that they I do. will grant they you. Do. Absolutely. And you, and, you, and you never hear anything about these voiceover uh, showstoppers. But I, look, you've hit the nail on the head, Jason. I worked in senior product management roles for IT companies. And I know how it works. I know that you sit down and you usually have a, a set of criteria that you work with, but you also sit down and you decide what is a show-stopping bug that requires you to spin another build. And someone, somewhere, has to take responsibility for the fact that they said voiceover not working at all, bricking people's Apple Watches if they happen to accidentally automatically install the thing, uh, is not a show-stopping bug. Uh, that's outrageous. And Apple really owes the blind community an apology, in my view, for doing that. But unfortunately, I think that would only happen if the media held Apple's feet to the fire. I, I don't blame the media primarily for it. I mean, as I say, for, for me, it's a bit of a hobby horse just in terms of the media's general approach to accessibility. And I think that is what prevents them from covering a story like this in a way that would be satisfying. And because it's so patronizing and so gung-ho uh, in terms of wanting to be able to tell a winning story, I just think there's there's a, a an incredibly heavy lift, even if you have a well-made case and evidence and a picture is worth a thousand words and all that kind of stuff. It's just too heavy a lift for people to say, I have to I have to go into an investigative, I have to go into a world that I don't know very well. And I have to basically take these guys' word for it, that this is a pretty big deal. And I think that's just something that a lot of folks who write about this stuff are, are not prepared to do, whether it's a beta or whether it's not. I'm, I'm less, I, I think there's a different standard for betas and there should be, but at this, in terms of both the quality of the software and also in terms of the coverage, but I think this would be 
the same, the issues would be the same in terms of media coverage if you were talking about shipping software. Yeah, and I'm absolutely, I just want to stress, I'm not saying at all that uh, we shouldn't expect a rocky road. Uh, when you install a, a piece of beta software. I, I'm not saying that. So there could be significant features that don't work right. It could cause you considerable inconvenience. And if possible, it's a good idea to um, have another device that you dedicate to these things. But of course, some blind people genuinely, as I say, want to be a part of the solution and can't afford another one. So you would expect it to at least say voiceover on and allow you to navigate even if certain apps, like even if messages are broken or, or certain other specific apps are broken, it should not be permitted to release a public build that shuts out a whole class of person Absolutely. from the process. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's stick with Apple. Uh, Jason, let's talk about cursors. Yeah, let's talk about cursors. So Apple introduced cursor support in 2019 as an accessibility function. It was a limited thing but cool uh where you could actually add a cursor to an ipad and uh it was an interesting first step and there was a question like is this apple's plan they want uh, an accessibility feature so that people who cannot uh easily use a touch screen can have a, a different pointing device that they can use to move around um but this year, it seems that it was more of a prelude to an even broader kind of cursor support. Um, they obviously released the Magic Keyboard for the iPad Pro, which adds, it's got a trackpad on it. It allows you to do, uh, you know, cursor input as well as as type. But of course, it will support pretty much any Bluetooth or USB pointing device and you'll get a little round cursor and you can move it around on the screen. And as somebody who uses an iPad Pro an awful lot and likes to use it in sort of a a laptop configuration, I love this feature and I love that accessory, expensive though it is, it is pretty amazing to suddenly have an iPad that behaves like a laptop. I was interested in what both of you think about this. I think there's definitely an accessibility story here in the sense that everybody's need in terms of input into these devices is different. And what excites me about this is Apple saying, use the iPad as you like, where before it was sort of like, use the iPad, eh, maybe not that kind of way, but all these other ways you can use it. And now it's sort of saying, if the most comfortable way you have to use an iPad is to grab a pointy device in your hand, and click on things like you do on a computer, you can do that and it will be a full, uh, you know, a full kind of experience. It's not going to be uh, lesser or we're not going to just sort of shun you and say, no, no, this is not that kind of product. And for me, I was very excited by them doing this because it just sort of expands what an iPad can be to be whatever I want, whenever I want it. Yeah, in a way, I think this is an example of where Apple may have moved a little from Steve Jobs' vision in a positive way. And I agree with you. I think the really cool thing about Apple products in recent times is the various ways that you can get content into the devices and interact with it. So in the blindness space, for example, we've seen Braille screen input, where the virtual keyboard becomes a virtual Braille keyboard. We've seen handwriting. And of course, dictation has increasingly become more capable so to me, whatever works for each individual, I think that's just a sensible move. It's it's a great thing they've done. Yeah, I think the cursor has specific accessibility applications, whether you're somebody with low vision or whether you have a motor delay and can operate best with whatever kind of pointing device, whether it's a 
traditional mouse. I, I should say, and I don't know everything about how he uses it, but I have a friend who is blind who has both an Apple Pencil and loves a trackpad. So <laughs> there are all sorts of ways to use all sorts of things. And I think the way Jonathan put it is just right, because there are other examples of this uh, where it's it's not only just about input, but Apple is creating in iOS ways for you to do things, multiple ways for you to do the same thing. The back tap feature that they introduced in iOS 14 that got a lot of mainstream love because you could just double tap or triple tap and use a, a command. And then the, um, uh, the the expansion of accessibility shortcut to give you direct access to people detection, things like that. That's just Apple giving you more ways to do the same thing. And I think that's sort of the hidden thing that I like about a lot of the additions to accessibility specifically that are happening is that they're saying, well, all right, if this doesn't work for you, for example, there are a lot of blind people who kind of miss the home button and who don't particularly like gesturing up from the bottom of the screen. Well, you can use Backtap, you can use Siri, you can create a shortcut, you can do all sorts of things like that. And I think that's only good. And for me, I think the cursor is great. I'm kind, I don't use it enough that I have intuited a cursor into my life. I still find it weird to see a little pointy thing, a little round pointy thing uh, moving around my iPad when I have a mouse connected to it. That's just because I haven't used it enough. But I love the idea. And there are a lot of instances in which I would rather point at something than have to to touch it, mostly to do with where I physically want to be in relation to my iPad screen. And I'm sure that's true of a lot of others as well. I feel like a bit of a rebel and a heretic because I've assigned my back tap to summoning the Google Assistant. And every time I do it, I feel this pang of guilt. I, I have a, uh, a Siri shortcut that allows me to do a Google command for this. It's very similar to that. It's like, this shouldn't be allowed, but it's allowed, so I'm going to do That's it. That's hilarious. I love that. I'm trying to think what subversive back tap I did. No, I don't have as well. Actually, I sort of do because <laughs> I'm a huge fan of dark mode, and I used uh, smart invert colors exclusively before dark mode came around. Well, dark mode isn't supported by everything, and particularly in browsers. So my back tap is smart invert color. So it's like, all right, dark yeah. mode. If you're not going to work for me, I'm going to smart invert color this sucker. Well, my next topic back to COVID-19 because it's 2020, and it always comes back to COVID-19. Contact tracing was a big story fairly early in the pandemic when Apple and Google got together and said, we're going to create this API and we're going to make it possible for states and other government entities to create apps that would allow content tracing. And that, at least in the United States, and I don't know, Jonathan, anything about what happened in New Zealand, but at least in the United States, that was very, very, very slow to get off the ground. First, there were zero states, then there were one, then there were two. Now there are a few more. But in general, contact tracing and not just for the reasons of that uh, API being adopted, not being adopted, but for a number of reasons. Contact tracing has not worked particularly well in the United States. A lot of it has to do with people having to opt in. Perhaps people have privacy concerns, but mostly I, f I feel like it's probably about just the inertial effect of not believing that contract tracing is, is going to be particularly effective and that they don't want to, that they haven't, haven't been sufficiently uh, convinced that pressing that button on their phone is an effective way to help protect themselves and others from COVID-19. And so I, it's interesting from this sort of early, I mean, a lot of people were maybe mistrustful of Apple and Google and had privacy concerns, but that's not what seems to have derailed it. It seems to have derailed it, in my opinion, and a couple of the articles I've read, it's, it has much more to do with just inertia. 
Well, in New Zealand, we adopted a contact tracing app quite early and it came out before the Apple Google API had become official. And ironically, the user interface did comply, certainly on iOS, with Apple's accessibility guidelines for the most part. But the way that New Zealand went was to legally require every place of business to display a barcode. And you had to scan the barcode to check in. The material was stored on your device. And then uh, if uh, you opted to, if you were asked to, you could release that information. And of course, there are some accessibility problems. First, it's very hard if you can't see the barcode to know where it is to scan it. Second, people in wheelchairs were often having issues because the barcodes weren't at an accessible height. And third, of course, you know, if you think that the exposure notifications are opt-in, I mean, this is seriously opt-in because you've got to scan those codes everywhere you go or the system doesn't work. And because we have no COVID in the community anymore, people are just out of the habit of scanning those codes. So it's been a really disappointing part of New Zealand's response that we chose such an inaccessible approach. But just recently, they have updated the app to include the exposure notifications with a real blitz around the messaging. So we have an office here in New Zealand called the Privacy Commissioner, and they assured New Zealanders that material was on the device, only you could release it. And there was a a real careful uh, messaging around introducing it. So it'll be interesting to see how much uptake that there is. I wish I had more to say about contact tracing, but honestly, the situation in the U.S. has been so bad that uh, contact tracing (laughs) has been not a very good option for a lot of uh, the period of time in 2020. So um, I don't know. I don't know, (laughs) Shelley. I really wish we had done better at this. And, you know, in my region, I think we did okay for a while, but... Yeah, it's it's a very sad thing. So as an American, I like to look at success stories elsewhere in the world because we don't have a lot of them right now. Thank you, New Zealand, for being there. Yes. (laughs) For us to envy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, maybe on a lighter note, let's for round four, uh, let's let's do something a little uh, more whimsical and and fun. Uh, And Jonathan, we'll start with you. I am just amazed at the things that keep coming back into fashion. I've got a son who is an audio engineer, which I'm jolly chuffed about, and he also graduated from surprise. broadcasting school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a bright lad. But um, he's done things like, I mean, he found my original 1977 copy <laughs> of Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell on vinyl. And the kid was in absolute ecstasy at finding this album. It was like he'd just struck a major gold bar or something, you know. Uh, so he has confiscated my turntable that I wasn't using and all my old albums that I've long since replaced with digital copies, you know, Queen and David Bowie and, of course, the Beatles and Meatloaf, all that kind of stuff. And then he got into cassettes and I just thought, OK, I, I sort of get the vinyl thing. People say that it's it's warm and, you know, it's an experience. But now he's got this three head cassette deck with the Dolby B and C. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is just getting too retro for me to cope with. So it made me wonder what's next. You know, what what old technology that we thought we had long disposed of is going to come back? Well, we see computers with punch cards, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that the uh, in the 20th century, the decade of the 20s, was the roaring 20s uh, coming out of World War I and coming out of uh, the, the flu pandemic. Uh, there was a wild party atmosphere 
in the 20s. And I have to say, I think that it is not quite technology, but like anything that enables people to uh, cut loose and have a good time and be together and all those things post pandemic. I think we're going to see everything go in that direction for the rest of this decade, because after everybody being bottled up during the pandemic, I think that it's going to leave its cultural mark on us for a while. So my wife needs to get a flapper costume. Flappers, my daughter. My, <laughs> I realized. Yeah. I realized last year that my daughter is going to be in her twenties, in the twenties, and I thought, well, <laughs> flappers, they're all going to be flappers. <laughs> there you go. So, as somebody who runs an old movie podcast, I should just say black and white movies and be done with it. Uh, <laughs> I think Jason's probably right, though. I think just anything that involves uh, getting out and having a good time, probably sports, outdoor sports equipment, mountain bikes, that kind of stuff. Uh, also, as a, as a cocktail geek, I, I know we had a cocktail renaissance already uh, starting like 15 years ago. Uh, maybe we'll have another one. But my guess is if we do, it will be. And this is I hadn't actually thought about this before we got here tonight. So I'm just making this up in, in real time. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say that out loud. Uh, but what I think <laughs> would happen is if, if this uh, if this cocktail renaissance part two happens, it will be much less precious and snobby than the original cocktail renaissance was. And you won't have as many people with uh, garters on their arms and uh, looking down their nose at certain cocktail ingredients. I think it will be a much more uh, democratized cocktail renaissance. But the people, maybe it'll be things like uh, punches and tiki drinks where people are actually uh, sharing uh, beautiful uh, flaming Mm. bowls of delicious cocktail stuff. Egalitarian cocktails. (laughs) I'm going to try and be on that trend as best I can. Jason, what's your round four topic? Round four. uh, Well, I I referenced this earlier. Um, My question is, is 2020 the year of Dungeons & Dragons? You talked about video games earlier, but I think one of the big trends that is a way for people to have a social interaction, even though they're remote, but also, um, you know, find fun in it. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons has never been bigger. It was already getting big even before the pandemic as people were playing it not just in person, but over the internet. And all of my Dungeons and Dragons playing is 100% of it over the internet. Um, And so the pandemic has made that uh, not only more uh, easy, but more necessary. So I think it's kind of a funny example that I just wanted to throw out there about ways that we find to connect with other people in, in ways that, you know, might've been invented 30, 40 years ago, but have an additional level of resonance now. And so having some escape, being playing a character, being in a far off land. I know Shelly has, has played Dungeons and Dragons this year. For the first time. That was what I was going to say. Yeah. So I, I think there's something to that. I don't feel so bad. I played my Dungeons and Dragons first game recently because when I was a teenager and a lot of my peers were into Dungeons and Dragons, I was uh, a born again Christian and quite sort of in the evangelical space. And I was told that Dungeons and Dragons were satanic and not to do it. And I didn't. And uh, so now I'm a born again atheist and my son, my oldest son, who's the audio engineer, he is really into it and he has to be the dungeon master. And he sat me down and he played it uh, with me. And it's really, really great. I was I was into it, but it's the only game I've played. 
I wonder, Jason, whether you think Monopoly, you know, the good old fashioned board game of Monopoly is kind of the same. You get around the table, it can take hours and it really engrosses everybody in something. Yeah, I think the challenge, if you've got if you've got a family group playing uh, games together, makes sense. The, the challenge is what games translate to a Zoom kind of experience. There are right, there yeah. are apps that will let you do board game kind of things on on the internet, and I've done some of those, and and they have there are varying degrees of su- success. It's actually a very funny thing when you take in person games and then you try to translate them to the internet. Which ones make the translation and which ones don't, and it can vary. Um, Dungeons and Dragons, strangely, which not to get too nerdy about this because again I'm sort of a latecomer to Dungeons and Dragons as well and I've only played it on <laughs> podcasts but uh, they did a version that was the fourth edition that was very much a tactical war game and I think again something about the zeitgeist something about the timing the most recent edition the fifth edition which is really the one that sparked this entire renaissance of people playing role playing games and Dungeons and Dragons in particular did away with a lot of the tactical you can still do it if you want but it eliminated a lot of the like there's got to be a map with a grid and you've got little figures and you've got and it's much more about storytelling it's in your mind it's it's everybody telling a story together perfectly timed maybe not as much as animal crossing but i would say perfectly timed for the internet and for the pandemic where everybody gets a little escapism they get to have fun with their friends they get to be out of their life for a little bit and be someone else and have a good time and have fun and uh and and not have to rely on like super accurate internet based maps of dungeons and things because it's all just kind of not that necessary you can all kind of hold it in your in your collective minds and uh it's been a lot of fun and i think it's perfect timing and and uh i i thought that myself and then i have come across these articles saying no actually more people are playing this game than have ever done before and the pandemic is one of the reasons why so when I was in high school, my friends were math and science nerds. They were the kind of people who were trying to decide between aerospace engineering or going directly to astronaut school. And I was a tiny bit intimidated by, by them because I was an English major kind of person. Uh, this is in high school. But, but, but they liked me and I liked them. And I knew they played Dungeons and Dragons. But I had it in my mind that they needed to invite me. I didn't feel comfortable saying, can I play? Because, oh, by the way, you have to teach me how. So I never played in high school. And then this year, I fell in with a bad crowd. And <laughs> they, invited, <laughs> they yep. invited me to play Dungeons & Dragons on the Internet uh, via Zoom. And I wasn't very good at it, but they were very nice to me. I mean, I just had a lot to learn. And I was given a rather extensive book to uh, do my homework in and to create a character. <laughs> and uh, I, it, it, was a, it was a delightful experience. Uh, it is very complicated. There's a lot to it. But if you do it with friends, uh, it, it can be a worthwhile thing to learn and, you know, yeah. don't, don't let them intimidate you. And, and they'll help you out. I mean, yeah. like, I, I came to it late. The... the, the Experience. If you've got a good dungeon master, they're going to tell you what dice to roll and what you need to do, and they'll they'll probably give you a character that is a a more. There are more simple characters. My early characters were basically I, I just need to run over there and hit a guy. Okay, I can do that, right? <laughs> like I'm not managing spells or anything. I'm literally just running with a sword. And uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I really recommend it. It is storytelling as much as it is anything else. It is is kind of improv in a way with your friends. It's fun. 
So another very pandemic thing that was probably starting before the pandemic but escalated this year is the idea of comfort television as opposed to prestige television. That's the way I look at it because there are all these shows for years and years that are very, very good television and and it was no longer – it was no longer even cool to be what I always was, which was a television skeptic. Now you had to say what your favorite show was. And it was, you know, is it Mad Men or The Walking Dead or The Wire or what were Sopranos or what what prestige television with an angry antihero do you like best? And and now not only is there a lot more comfort television, but there does seem to be permission in the zeitgeist, again, before the pandemic and also after, to consume and enjoy that comfort television. It just seems like there's more of it. And I, I guess, uh, and I didn't put this on the doc, so don't don't feel too put on the spot. And Jonathan, I don't know what the TV uh, environment in New Zealand is like, but I'll just throw it out there. Yeah. Do either of you have favorite TV shows that you would, would characterize as comfort television that you would recommend other people watch? Oh, I, I have a few, so I can go while Jonathan is thinking of what is uh, what is optional. <laughs> I could throw out a, a couple um, on Apple TV Plus, <clears throat> which is available worldwide. Ted Lasso is a just delightful, positive, happy uh, show with a happy protagonist. It is it is the opposite of the peak TV antihero. Um, it's funny, but it's also just sort of comforting and delightful. Um, so I'll throw that one out there. And another one that I will mention that I have been using as comfort uh, the last few months is The Great British Bake Off on Netflix, which is, uh, you know, just watching English people bake things. That's literally all it is. And they're nice to each other. They like each other. They're not mean like on an American reality show. And as an American, I also have that extra little bit of not understanding half the things they're making that they all act as if is perfectly common and it's for a holiday I've never heard of and everybody always has this down on the high street and I have no idea what they're talking about and that's amazing too. So those are those are my suggestions. Yeah, because yeah, Professor Henry Higgins put it best when he said that Americans hadn't spoken English for years. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Um, I, I have to be a contrarian a little bit. You'll never have me back again, Shelley, <laughs> being a contrarian. But but um, I, I find this concept of comfort TV, it's a little bit like music, certain music being guilty pleasures, you know, and you're not supposed to admit to like listening to Barry Manilow or ABBA or whatever it is. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't, I don't give a damn what anybody thinks of me uh, liking particular music. If I like it, I like it. And, you know, if you don't like it, that's your problem. So I find it hard to get into the whole concept of comfort TV. But recently we have been watching um, The Crown. I, I find that enthralling, actually, because it's so blurred between fiction and nonfiction. A lot of it's really made up and, and quite exaggerated. The, the characters are almost caricatures. Um, in terms of Apple TV+, my wife, Bonnie, who's a major space nut, and I, I'm also a space nut, we just love For All Mankind yeah. on Apple I TV+. That is a great show. And if I can again just add an accessibility lens to this, one of the real good things about um, Apple TV+, Plus, we have a Dolby Atmos system here at home. And when you switch on audio description in a lot of these services, the Dolby Atmos goes away because the audio description, sometimes it's only stereo. If you're lucky, you get 5.1. But all of the stuff that Apple does... Uh, that is encoded in Dolby Atmos is also still in Dolby Atmos when you turn audio description on. So wow. yay for Apple. That is yeah. next level because I know there are um, a few people I know who rely on audio description who are very frustrated by how uh, hit and miss it can be on various streaming platforms. So it's oh, yeah. good that Apple is doing that. 
It's wonderful. All right, yeah. another plus in the apple column. <laughs> I guess. I guess. All right. I guess I, the only thing I would push back on about comfort TV is more just that not that not that it's a guilty pleasure, but more that there's there's TV that I like because I want to be challenged and I want and it's gritty and like for all mankind, some really harsh things happen yes, to some of the characters I, in I that. I wouldn't call that comfort for me. And then anyway. deep deep in the <laughs> no, pandemic, no, no. I just want to see people bake stuff. Sometimes some that's that's sort of how I took the question is like sometimes I can't take anything stressful, and that's when I watch people bake things. I, I get that. I mean, I really thought bad things were going to happen to that cosmonaut for a while there. But <laughs> yeah. I suppose if, yeah. if, if, if I And the audio description was comfort, great on that, wasn't it, Jonathan? Wasn't it? Yeah. Was really but see, if I want comfort, I don't turn the TV on. I think that's where oh. I differ, right? So what, if I want comfort, I meditate or I listen to some of my favorite music. I guess I just don't turn to TV for comfort. I don't as much as I might have done in the past. I don't know how people keep up with more than a couple of shows at a time. I still haven't figured that out. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say I have two <laughs> kinds of comfort TV. The one that I discovered, it's not this, it didn't start this year, but it ended this year, is the Canadian series Shit's Creek. I loved it. It was great. And Catherine O'Hara, I, ju- I just started going, oh, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy, that must be good. And it became so much more. Great series. Love it. The other kind of comfort that I go for is, I mean, as I say, I do a black and white movie podcast, so I, I like old things. And I like old things that are familiar, and that applies to television. And I will get on YouTube and I will find some TV series that I remember from when I was a kid. And it may not even been one I like that much, but I remember it being on at home. And I don't always watch through the series, but a, a partial list of things I've watched lately are the original Dark from 1975, which was on PBS. It was originally an English uh, program. I haven't gotten to watch the new Dark, which I understand is quite a lot grittier. Uh, also, this is probably the weirdest one, uh, but uh, there is a detective show in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s called Mannix. And so if you want to see America in the big car, muscle car, plaid jacket, 60s and 70s, that's a good show to watch. And and uh, I, I watch uh, I watch a little Gunsmoke every now and again because I just remember that being on when I was a kid. So <laughs> those are my comfort TV things. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Jason Snell and Jonathan Mosen, for being with me on this uh, year in review. It was it was fabulous, and I really appreciate your doing homework because that's not usually a part of the show. <laughs> thank you, Shelley. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me, Shelley. It's been a real blast. Actually, I've enjoyed it. Awesome. Nice to meet you, Jason. Nice to meet you too. We'll be back in less than two weeks with another fabulous episode of Parallel. Bye for now.